All right. Psalm chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll jump to Psalm 10. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He he judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people is his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And then we'll jump to Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you how it is a light into our path. It directs us and instructs us and it encourages us. God, we pray that you would please give us ears to hear. We ask God that you would give us Um, eyes to see, 
the wonders and the beauty of Christ. And give us hearts, God, that are pliable to receive what you have for us this morning, that we may be conformed further in the image of Christ. We ask God this psalm would bring us comfort and encouragement, that it would instruct us on how we can endure through affliction and oppression and trial. And we ask you're glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I tried to open my Bible, but the wind is just not agreeing with me right now. So I'm, I'm thankful to have God's word on my tablet or on my device. So that's pretty cool. Um, so this morning, I'm going to get like straight into it. We're going to go kind of like blowing through two chapters in the Psalms. And I know that um, we're in Psalm 9 and 10, and it's going to throw a few of you off today because we have been taking this one chapter at a time, slowly and methodically, and it's been great. Um, so normally we do that one chapter at a time, but today is a little different because we've run into a few chapters or two chapters that many scholars believe were meant to be one and not two. So after time studying these two Psalms and thinking through these two Psalms, I have to say that I agree. These two works seem to be one cohesive song of both public praise and personal plea. And I'm just going to give you quickly three reasons why I think that is, so we can just kind of clear the air on why we're treating both these Psalms as one Psalm this morning. Number one, we see that these are one work in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is the earliest known translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. It was used by the early church sometime in the middle of the third and second century. And so we understand, again, this gives us one more reason to believe that these two Psalms quite possibly could be one. The second reason I want to give you is that they compose a single acrostic poem or an acrostic psalm. Now, if you know what an acrostic is, it's a literary device where the first letter in each sentence or the first letter in each paragraph spells out a name or a phrase or a key word that helps connect or tie the main thought of the poem or the song together. I actually on Wednesday afternoon wrote a quick acrostic poem for an example for the kids in the audience say, okay, here it goes. It's not a kid's poem, I'm sorry, but time keeps going, ages fly by, centuries count down like seconds, old age arrives. That sounds very deep, right? Well, the acrostic spells T-A-C-O, taco. And the reason why it spells taco, because it was Wednesday afternoon and my wife was making tacos. And that's pretty much all I was thinking about when I was writing this little acrostic poem. But that's what an acrostic is. In ancient literature, writers would start acrostic poems with letters of the alphabet to help with style, to help with creativity, or to even help with retention and memory for us to memorize the psalm or memorize the song. Now, Psalm 9 and 10 are an acrostic poem. Psalm 9 includes the first half of the Hebrew alphabet, while Psalm 10 includes the last half of the Hebrew alphabet, which gives us one more reason to believe that both Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 belong together. Lastly, Psalm 10 has no title. Now, not all Psalms have titles. This isn't a deal breaker, but almost every Psalm is given a title. And the lack of title alone doesn't give us enough proof to believe that Psalm 910 are one work. But if you couple that with the repeating themes, concepts, the key phrases that we see here in the text, I think it gives a strong case for them belonging together. So with all that being said, we're going to be treating Psalm 9 and 10 as one work this morning because I believe that the author intended them to be so. Now let me quickly add this too. 
brought in the beginning. One of the main reasons that scholars believe that Psalm 9 and 10 were split in two by the translators is because they present contrasting themes. Psalm 9 mentions the wicked, but it majors on how the Lord rules in righteousness and justice. There is this triumph and praise that's slotted throughout the entire psalm and song. Or Psalm 10, it minors on the Lord and his eternal throne, and it majors on the wicked and their temporary victory and prosperity in this fallen world. So there's a different in emphasis in both Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, but I believe it's the stark contrast of these two psalms that God's eternal victory that we see in Psalm 9 and the wicked's temporary victory that we see in Psalm 10, then you couple that with the psalmist's struggle, and we'll see this throughout the text, to reconcile those two realities. I think it strengthens the argument that these two psalms are one great song of both praise, public praise, and also public plea and lament. So, We're treating them as one work, okay? That's what we're doing. Now, in this psalm, we will see shouts of victory and we will see cries for help. We will see both how how both these interactions with God help carry the, the afflicted, the oppressed, the downtrodden believer in an unjust and stained world. They help carry the believer through this. Now, I have titled today's sermon, Praise, for his glory and for our good. Praise for his glory and for our good. Now let's begin with the title here found at the top of Psalm 9. Psalm 9 is titled to the choir master according to the Muth Laban, a Psalm of David. Now here we have the name of the author. We have King David, Israel's most famous king who has many songs and prayers included in the Psalter, the book of Psalms. We also have the song's address. It's to the choir master, more than likely one of ancient Israel's worship leaders or ministers of music. And then we have this Hebrew phrase, muth laban. Now this meaning of the word or words is kind of uncertain. We don't truly understand what's being said here, but here's what most scholars believe. They mostly believe that it's a reference to a tune or a key to tune your instruments to or to sing to for this particular song. So, for example, what we're seeing here is the psalm, as we've known as kind of Israel's ancient songbook. This here is giving us the sheet music. It's giving us the song, the name of it, the writer, and the key and the vocalist to help us understand and sing the song corporately. All that to say, this is an ancient song written by David, for all of Israel to recount and rejoice and sing for the glory of God. Now we're going to take this, not line by line, but we're going to take this in chunks, okay? So Psalm 9, starting in verses 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name Oh, most high. Now, as a minister of music here at Apostles Church, I really enjoy this call to worship. That's exactly what this is. This is a call for God's people to worship. At the beginning of our service, we make it a point to open God's word and help to engage our hearts and our minds into who we're worshiping, why we're able to worship him, how we're able to worship him through Christ. This right here in Psalm 9, this is the beginning of a call to worship. 
The psalmist begins by explaining where adoration and praise start, and that is, he says, in the heart. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Now, it should come as no surprise to us that to those who know God, he desires our heart. He's not interested in good voices and lip lip service in particular. He wants the heart. It was the book of Isaiah that God made this clear, speaking of Israel and their waywardness. This is Isaiah 29, 13. Speaking of Israel, this people, they draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. God wants the heart and not just a portion of it. God wants all of our heart. He wants the whole thing. The ancient call to worship found in Deuteronomy 6 tells us as much. It's called the Shema, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. God desires and God deserves all of our heart. And you know what? Where our heart points, that's where our affections go. Where our heart directs, that is where our affections go. The psalmist rightfully proclaims that he will give thanks to God with a whole heart because whole heart worship is heartfelt worship. It's genuine. It's real It displays the love and the adoration that is due to our Heavenly Father. And God wants nothing less. Half-heart worship to God is divided. It's diluted. It's disingenuous. C.H. Spurgeon said, half-heart is no heart. So proper praise flows from a whole heart oriented towards God. Now, when we read the words whole heart, it's helpful to understand what is meant by that. What does it mean to worship God with a whole heart? Oftentimes, when the biblical authors would write heart or soul, they're referring to the whole man, the whole being. So not just our affections, but our minds and our bodies. I mean, it's referring to everything. Back to Deuteronomy 6, that ancient call to worship. Let's finish up that text. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus later quoted this Old Testament command and he added a synonym. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your mind. Now these are all descriptors pointing to what it means to worship God with the whole heart. Worship him with the whole person. And in this, this, these couple verses, in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist alludes to this holistic posture of praise here in our text. He first says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds, verse 1. This is praising God with our mind, right? Mentally recalling and remembering the wonderful things that God has done. Wondering wonderful big things that God has done. For Israel, this was them looking back at the Exodus, how God delivered them from Pharaoh, how God has continued to deliver them from rival nations. For us this morning, I think the big thing, the wonderful deeds that God has done is we could immediately look to the cross. We can think about how salvation was purchased by the blood of Christ. And because of that, we had this wonderful relationship with God and this wonderful relationship with each other. That's a wonderful deed that we can think about and recount that helps cause us to worship and praise. But we also can thank God for all the small things, like a clear sky today, like the wind stopping and my Bible not ruffling anymore. We can thank God for the fact that we can gather as a church this morning. I mean, this is amazing. This has been a struggle for a year. 
We can thank God for littler things, for the fact that we have decaf for the first, thing, first time this morning. For all you decaf people, I don't understand you, but we have that. And donut holes. Worship involves our minds. Verse two, the psalmist says, I will be glad and exult in you. This is praising God with our emotions. To exalt in God is to rejoice in God. Recounting God's deeds brings about rejoicing and rejoicing in God's deeds brings about praise. It was C.S. Lewis who said, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. It's because when you enjoy someone, you speak so highly of them, right? You sing their praises. Delighting in God is the ultimate form of worship and praise. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper did a quick edit, which I enjoy. The chief ending of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Worship involves our emotions. It involves us delighting and enjoying God. And this is what the psalmist is getting at when we exult in God. Verse two, he says, I will sing praise to your name. This is praising God with our mouths, with melody. He's saying with minds full of who God is and what he's done, recounting, with hearts bubbling up, with gratitude and joy, there is no greater outlet corporately than to sing songs of praise. Whether you have a good voice or a bad voice, talent or no talent, the Lord just wants to hear us sing him praise. That's why the psalmist 98.1, he's always, they're always stirring the congregation or the assembly to sing out or to shout out. Psalm 98.1 is a great example. He says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things. Then drop down to verse four in Psalm 98. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of a horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. This is why Christians throughout history have gathered and just found all this delight in God together and it's all expressed itself in singing songs of praise. That's why singing is such a crucial part of the the Sunday gathering here at Apostles Church because singing is what happens when God's people gather to recount his wonderful deeds and when they delight in his wonderful works. Singing God's praise involves the whole heart. Now verses one and two, that's, that's the general opening to the call to worship. Now he's going to practice what he just preached. He calls the assembly to recount some specific acts of God to stir them to praise him. He has them recall what God has done, what God is doing, and who God is. Is. So first, what God has done, verses three through six. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. The psalmist is calling to attention the past victories they have it, they've had over their enemies and how those victories can be solely committed and done by the mighty hand of God. Now he sings of how his enemies, they retreat in God's presence, they stumble and they perish before God in his presence. 
He recounts that God has justly fought their battles and rightly judged the wicked nations. That God has literally wiped all memory of them off the face of the earth. Now, not having God on your side would make this song absolutely terrifying. But for Israel, this brought both comfort and confidence that God would always fight their battles. They would look back to see what God has done and take confidence knowing that God will always do that. The psalmist then sings of what God is currently doing, verses seven through eight. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness and he judges the people with uprightness. Now this picture of the Lord sitting enthroned forever is a sharp contrast against the wicked who have just had their names blotted out forever. This is an accurate contrast between king, the king of heaven and the kings or the kingdoms of man. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He rules with perfect justice. He judges the world in righteousness and perfectly judges the heart of all people. I mean, what earthly king could ever come close to this description? There's none. That's why the prophet Jeremiah could say, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Now, this is not a description of what God used to do or how God used to be. This is our reality in this moment. God is currently sitting on the throne in all righteousness and judging with perfect justice and there is no one like him. And as royal and powerful and majestic as he is, he still makes it clear that he will not forget his people. He will not forget the cries of his people. Which brings us to verses 9 and 10. This is recounting who God is. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now this part of the song here is meant to bring great comfort. It's meant to bring great security. For the downcast and hurting believer, for the oppressed and the unjustly treated, for the wrongfully accused, sinfully gossiped about and targeted by the world, listen, God is your rest. God is your vindicator. God is your stronghold in times of trouble. I mean, this is a small description of who God is. And it's still meant to warm our hearts and affections toward how wonderful our God is, how deeply he cares about you and me. This recounting of what God has done, of what God is doing, and of who God is should fill us with confidence and joy to sing praise with the whole heart. This is the psalmist's call to worship. This is what he calls us to do in the next couple of verses, verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Like what a pump up call to worship. I mean, this is like, let's get the band back out here. Let's do this thing again. It's such a great call on who we actually sing songs to when we gather here together as the body of Christ, who we sing songs to every single day. I mean, we could literally 
turn some worship music on, crack open our Bibles, read and sing a psalm to our Lord and God, just recount how wonderful he is. Now, up until this point, it seems like the psalmist is having a pretty good day, like spiritual high on a mountaintop. And um, he's writing this song out. He's exhorting Israel. He's saying, sing praise the Lord, recount his wonderful deeds, defeat, the, I mean, excuse me, he's defeated all of our enemies. He's destroyed all the wicked. He's maintained our just cause. He's enthroned forever. He judges the nations with justice and righteousness. I mean, God himself, he's saying, is our stronghold. For all who know his name and put their faith and trust in him, he will not forsake or leave. But here is when praise turns into like a plea for help. And it's like a very quick pivot. Verses 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift, o you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praise, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. This gets personal really quick. And it's in this little prayer that we begin to see the occasion for this psalm. You see, the psalm has been all praise up to this point. So the assumption can be that things must be going good. No current struggles here. But now we're seeing that he might not have been smiling when he wrote these words. He might not have been smiling when he actually thought about this song. He actually is going through something and it appears to be uh, life-threatening. Now, in the text, we don't know for sure what his current affliction is. But we have a pretty good idea that it involves godless men who are seeking to destroy him and his reputation. This could be a conflict and, uh, with another nation. So it could be nation against nation or this could be more of an internal conflict. He mentioned his affliction is directly from those who hate him in verse 13. And he expresses his longing for God to deliver him from the gates of death so that he can recount God's rescue and praise in the days ahead. I mean, it seems pretty serious. When someone is asking God to deliver them from the gates of death, they are probably going through something pretty heavy, which we'll kind of unpack in a second. But he then pivots again, verses 15 and 18. It's almost as if he's like, okay, okay, I'm going to go back to recounting who God is. I'm going to start seeing God's praise. The psalmist pulls out of this desperate prayer and gets back into it. He says in verse 15, The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Pause, reflect. Verse 17, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Now, if you take this chunk of scripture and you bring it up next to verses three through 12, what you're gonna see is a quick recap of three through 12. He is revisiting the recounting of who God is, what God has done and what God will do. But then beginning in verse 19, he cries out again in prayer. And it's here that we gain more insight into his very present and heavy affliction. Psalm 9, 19 through 10, 18. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. 
Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in its thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. That's a pretty heavy prayer. And in a nutshell, here's what the psalmist's issue is. He knows that God will deliver him from the wicked like he's done in the past. He knows that God will maintain his just cause. He knows that God will, f- will not forget him. He knows that God does see and will judge the wicked. Their names will be wiped out at some point. He knows that God will do all these things and more. But his issue is, is that God isn't doing it yet. His problem is, is that God is not doing anything yet from what he can see. He's looking at the wicked. He's watching them prosper. He's watching all the injustice and the oppression and it's driving him crazy. He's crying out, Arise, Lord, don't let them prevail any longer. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It is now clear that his affliction is that he and possibly the nation of Israel too is suffering life-threatening, unjust persecution from godless wicked men or nations. Men who he describes as being filled with pride and arrogance, who prey on the weak, poor, and marginalized, who are greedy for gain, who are filled with cursing, deceit, and oppression. They are literally described as lions who are watching and waiting to devour the poor and the helpless and the innocent. They blatantly say there is no God. There will be no judgment. I mean, these men don't just believe there is no God like a modern-day atheist might believe. You know, if you know someone who's an atheist, they believe there's no God, but they kind of have this sense of morality and treat fellow men fairly. And these guys don't even care. I mean, they literally live, they believe it, and they live as if there is no God, there'll be nothing held account, there is nothing they need to live by. And what's frustrating for the psalmist is that these godless men appear to be prospering. He says that in verse 5. They taunt God by saying in their heart, God's forgotten you. He has hid his face from you and he will not hold us accountable for what we do to you. We have seen the psalmist's confidence in what God will do in the future. But now in this moment, he is really struggling to understand what God is allowing in the present. 
He's struggling with what God is allowing in the present. Why are you allowing these men to prosper? Why are you letting good things happen to these horrible people and bad things happen to innocent and just people? Why, O oh Lord, do you hide your face from me in my moment of need? I mean, how relatable is this prayer? You know? To know who God is, to know how great God is, the great things he's done, how he's delivered, he's saved us from our sin, to know what our future holds in Christ, to understand God's power and his might and his love and his mercy and his righteous rule, and yet still scratch our heads and we're wonder why he hasn't delivered us from our current affliction or our trial or our illness. Why he hasn't restored broken marriages yet. Why he hasn't restored strained relationships and divided families. Why he is still allowing our reputations to be unjustly destroyed by men greedy for gain. Why the wicked prosper as they destroy the innocent, marginalized, poor, and humble. It begs the question, why do you stand far off, Lord? I think the psalmist is asking a very honest question that I think a lot of us have asked in our lifetime. And in our text, he doesn't get an answer from God. We don't even know if he experienced complete resolution with these wicked men in his lifetime. But here's what we do know. We know that he didn't lose faith and we know that he didn't stop praising his Lord. Verses 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. From his land. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. After contemplating the wicked and the why questions, he returns to what he knows to be true. What he knows to be sure and concrete. What he knows will strengthen his heart. He knows that the Lord is king forever. That the Lord will right every wrong. The Lord hears the cry of his people. And although he has not been delivered from his momentary affliction, he trusts that God will strengthen his heart and sustain until deliverance comes. And that's how this psalm ends. It ends in praise. I want to share two concluding thoughts gleaned from this psalm before we close. Number one that's where the title of my sermon comes from. Singing praises to God is for his glory and for our good. Singing praises to God is for his glory and for our good. Now we sing praise to God because he deserves it. Our primary reason for singing praises to God is to glorify him because he is more than worthy of our praise. Amen? In this psalm, we see so clearly that in bringing God glory and singing praise, we are given all kinds of grace in the wake of our delight and praise. As we praise God, we are given so much grace in the wake of just being obedient and serving and loving and recounting and praising his name. Highlighted in our text today is the grace of strength and the building of faith. We see this strength come as we recount who God is, what he has done for us, and what he will do for us. So when we witness or experience wickedness prevailing, we can recount our Lord's righteous judgment and eternal victory in Christ. We can praise the lamb who was slain. 
Our hearts can be strengthened knowing that ultimately God sits enthroned forever and those who put their trust in him will not be forsaken. I'm talking to you, Christian. Ultimately, God wins and no matter what happens to us in this life, we know our heavenly father loves us so much so that while we were dead in our sin, Christ died for us and has made peace by the blood of the cross. Singing praises to our Lord gives us grace to persevere in dark times. It was Paul and Silas who were beat, chained, thrown into prison for proclaiming Christ, for preaching the gospel. And what did they do in the middle of the night that strengthened their soul? They were just caught singing praises to God. Songs of praise have sustained God's people in trial and persecution all throughout the church's history. There are countless stories of men and women killed for their faith in Christ and many testimonies of witnesses hearing these men and women, these individuals singing the truths of the Psalms, the truths of the scriptures, all the way up until their last breath. Church, we would do good to keep praise on our lips through every season of life, especially the dark ones. Singing God's praise is for his glory and it is for our good. And then lastly, we don't know why God tarries, but we do know we can trust him in his patience. We don't know why God tarries, takes his time. We don't know what God is doing, but we do know that we can trust that he will do something and that we can trust our loving father. It appears that God did not answer the psalmist's question when he asked, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why does God allow the wicked to continue in their ways? Why does the innocent blood have to be shed? These are tough, like, I mean, extremely tough theological questions. Ones that we will not get an exact answer for on this side of heaven. But notice that the psalmist doesn't spend too much time meditating on what he doesn't know. He spends the majority of his time meditating on what he does know. What he knows is that God is righteous, that God is good, that God is just that God is merciful, that God is loving. What we know is that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that God is sovereign. We know that what evil and oppressive men do for evil reasons, God purposes for good. And there is no greater example of this biblical truth than the unjust killing of the innocent son of God at the hands of wicked, sinful man where the innocent righteous lowly king of kings was beaten he was whipped and hung on a cross and it would have been really easy to look at that scene the crucifixion and wonder why does God hide his face in times of trouble but we know why we know why God did not do anything we know why God let his son hang on that cross and die and it was for the good, to save many. Let me remind us today, it was for our sin that Christ died. Jesus endured affliction beyond comprehension for us. He was mocked and ridiculed. He was spoken evil of and unjustly arrested. He was oppressed. He was stricken for our iniquities. He was pierced for our wickedness. He was crushed for our sin. And this was all born out of love for us. Christ then rose from the grave. He defeated death. He's now seated in the heavenly places. And you know what we know? Here's something that we know for sure. We know 
that Jesus has the final victory. And in our momentary affliction, we can trust that in Christ, we will too. This is what we do know. So let us praise the Lord with a whole heart. Let us recount all of his wonderful deeds. Let us rejoice in Christ, church. And let us sing him praises forevermore. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your son. God, just this, this last couple seconds of reflecting on what Christ has done for us, what Christ went through for us. God, enduring and taking on our punishment and our shame so that we might be clothed in his righteousness and enjoy sonship. What an amazing thing. What an amazing hope. God, what an amazing reality for those who put their faith in Jesus. Holy Spirit, you know if there's someone here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior, we ask that you would convict. We ask that you would have ears unstopped and eyes that can see, hearts that are pliable and that the gospel would take root and repentance would happen. We ask God that you'd save people. We ask God that you would continue to further this, this, the, the truths of scripture into our hearts. God, that we'd be conformed into Christ more and more. God, to bring you glory. And we ask God that as we sing praises your church this morning, that you would just be pleased and honored. God, help us to delight in you, even if we're going through an extremely difficult time. God, help us to know that joy, ultimate joy, lasting joy is found in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.